Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Thanks, Sue. Thank you, too, for our music team. There's a, um, I don't know if you recognize, but there's a, a theme in the songs that we sang, we've been singing this morning, and uh, we'll be talking along those lines. Um, a chicken and a pig were passing a church on a country road and they saw a sign outside the church, charity meals for the poor, please contribute, said the chicken to the pig. Charity meals for the poor, sounds like a worthy cause. Let's contribute a ham and bacon, a ham and egg breakfast, responds the pig thoughtfully. Madam, for you that would be a contribution. For me, total commitment. Today's passage that uh, Sue read from Mark chapter 12 is strangely similar. We see Jesus challenged on a number of occasions by the religious leaders as to the authority that he had in ministering in the way in which he did. Today we'll see that the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, and their place and the, and the position that they held at the time was merely a contribution, and not a very good contribution at that, to the life of the people. However, we will also see that Jesus showed total commitment in his calling as Messiah. And therein lies a challenge for us. But to place all of these events into a context, I want to go back to Exodus chapter 12. Long way back. Exodus chapter 12 tells us a number of the religious laws of the people that they were going to follow as a new nation. And one of them was that four days before the annual Passover was going to take place, a sacrificial lamb was to be chosen. So every family had to go out and find a lamb, buy a lamb, But that lamb was a special lamb because that lamb needed to be checked over to ensure that it was without blemish. There was nothing wrong with that lamb. It was in perfect condition. In fact, they were to bring it in four days before the Passover festival when that lamb was going to be slaughtered, signifying the taking of the sin of that family on itself for the sake of the life of that family. The animal was to be examined for four days. It was important that the animal was perfect. Almost the best was not good enough. In fact, later on in the Old Testament, the prophet stated uh, in Malachi, he says to the people, you offer your offerings, but they're the oldest sheep. They're the worst sheep. They're the cheapest sheep. That's the problem with sin in our lives. We don't need reminding that we of ourselves are never good enough to come close to God. We don't need reminding of that, do we? He's perfect and we are not. But friends, that's why Jesus, God's only son, came to this earth. Because no one else could or would be good enough to deal with our problem of sin and selfishness. A little earlier in Mark, in chapter 11, it tells us, and Pastor Mark took us through this last week, of that great triumphant entry into Jerusalem that Jesus undertook. It was only four days before the crucifixion. Also, the very day that the Jewish families were required to select their lamb for the sacrifice. 
And of course, as I said, that lamb had to be examined and declared without blemish. Three years earlier, in fact, in Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist had described Jesus as the perfect lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so Mark shows us how Jesus is the ultimate lamb and how over those four days he was examined to be seen without blemish. He was shown over those four days to be fit for purpose to take away the sins of the world. The people didn't know that. The disciples didn't know it. The religious authorities didn't know that that was what it was about. But Jesus knew about it. And Jesus was examined by questions put to him by the religious leaders. On each occasion, Jesus was asked a question by the religious leaders. But each of the questions were designed to try and trap him into saying something that would give them a good reason to arrest him. By this stage, the religious and political leaders hated Jesus, hated him with a, with a, a vehemence that we, we almost can't understand. It had hung, sunk so low, in fact, that they were planning to have him assassinated. They wanted him removed and not just jailed, but they wanted to kill him. He was threatening everything that they stood for. He did not fit into the mould of religion that they, over the years, had formed. He was an outsider, yet he had drawn the people to himself as he served and taught over those three years. And this, this examination process took place when Jesus entered the temple. On the day in which he came in on that donkey in triumph, he went into the temple and destroyed the marketplace that had been set up to make, the, to, to make money out of the strict religious ceremonial requirements of the law. The truth was that the religious leaders had abused their power and were making large profits from the ordinary people. In fact, Jesus explained that the special place of worship had become a den of thieves. Now, the definition of a den is a place where thieves go to hide. I think that's interesting. For it was in the sanctuary of the temple precincts where the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the scribes felt safest. They were on home ground. They were well and truly in their den. Yes, it was full of people, but they had power. They had ultimate power in that place. This was their domain. They could hide behind their religion. They could hide behind their rituals. They had built a system of religion where they could openly abuse their own people for their own personal power. They'd been working in with their Roman rulers whenever it suited them, even though they didn't like them. And all in the name of God. That's how low they'd gone. And here was Jesus openly and publicly challenging the religious leaders and their self-appointment to the place of corrupt rulers. So the leaders were out to get him. He was on their home turf. He was playing an away game, as it were. And they thought they had all the strength and the power. The first occasion when they start to, to, to close in on him is recorded in chapter 11 of Mark. When a contingent of religious leaders came to Jesus and demanded by what authority he had turned over the money, money makers in the temple. Cleverly, Jesus countered them by asking why they had accepted John the Baptist's teachings, but not Jesus' teachings. 
You want to talk about authority? You didn't question John the Baptist. Why are you questioning me? By what authority did John the Baptist uh, preach? And Mark tells us that, in fact, the reason that they, they couldn't say anything was because the crowd believed still after these, these years in John the Baptist. So they couldn't say he was wrong because the crowd would go against him then. He couldn't say Jesus was wrong because the crowd was very much in Jesus' favour at that time. And so he began to challenge the corrupt leaders with his own questions. A little later, some Pharisees, the followers of King Herod, came to Jesus. The Pharisees were probably the most powerful religious leaders, or the religious sects at the time. But they came and asked Jesus if it was right to support the government by paying taxes to their enemy. This again was a trick question. Because if Jesus had said you need to pay your taxes, it meant that he was supporting the, the, Roman, uh, the Roman occupying uh, forces and Caesar at their head. If he said no, he was supporting Herod, then that would have been unpopular as well. It seemed that no matter how Jesus replied to their question, he was in trouble with Rome or Herod. But Jesus moved the discussion from politics to principles and caught the hypocrites in their own trap. Remember, he said, show me a coin. Whose face is on this? Caesar's face is on the coin, okay? By the fact that you are using Caesar's money means that you're open to him being there. So you give the Caesar, you pay the taxes that they deserve. In other areas you need to give, you give to that. The next time it was the turn of the Sadducees. The Sadducees, in fact, did not believe in the resurrection of the body. Their idea was that once you died, you died because they only followed the Talmud, those first five books of what we have as the Old Testament. doesn't speak about resurrection, so they said resurrection doesn't happen. They tried to show that Jesus was foolish, and the funny thing was these fellows who don't believe in the resurrection came in with a question about the resurrection. And Jesus pointed out that, in fact, the idea of resurrection in God's eyes is totally different to what we think often as humans. There's a far deeper theological understanding than they had considered. And now they were the ones who looked foolish. Finally, a scribe came along. Now, the scribes, they were the nitpickers. They were the, the keepers, the literal keepers of the law. They were the ones who wrote and rewrote the law. They were very accurate about what writing was about. They rarely made mistakes. And they were considered the final authority on matters of scriptural interpretation. Over time, they had determined the laws that the Jews were supposed to live by. And in fact, they'd come up with no fewer than 613 laws that a good Jew would be under, about 400 don'ts and about 200 do's. Came down to quite ridiculous things. And this man's intention, this scribe's intention, was to show Jesus' ignorance by asking him which rule was the most important. You've got to choose one of the 613. doesn't matter what you do, you're going to be wrong with some of the people. But as Sue read to us, Jesus replied by not giving just one answer but by two. The first is, of course, the most important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and soul. But there's another one very closely, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, the other 611 laws all just fit into place. 
Each time Jesus answered these questions with amazing statements, proving the ineptness and the foolishness of the religious and the political leaders, but also showing that he was clearly the one who he said he was, the predicted Messiah. In the end, we are told that no one dared to ask him any more questions. We're also told that the crowd was more than quietly delighted at the answers that they had heard Jesus say. You see, the leaders were only intent on maintaining their status and power. From them, there was no real commitment to God. They gave their time, as the chicken spoke of earlier, a supposed contribution. But just as long as they could hold onto their power, their wealth and their prestige. But Jesus, through his three years of ministry on this earth, came and showed that he came to serve. Finally, Jesus asked his own question of these religious leaders. If I'm not the Messiah, who am I? You've seen what I've done. You've seen what I've said. You be the judge. And the scriptures even speak about me. This is the question we must all answer. David talked about this Lord, my Lord. If David's son was to be the Messiah, but David was the greatest king that the, Israel, the, um, the Jewish people had ever had. How could his son be greater than David? He can be if he's the Messiah. So if Jesus was who he said he was, we must follow him. How committed are you to him? Do you treat Jesus as somebody that is just a commodity there with you? Oh, I need to pray. I need something. I'll pray to you, Jesus. I'll, I'll contribute, but I won't commit. Jesus' words here are not to be taken lightly. I'm sure all of us have fallen into the trap the religious authorities fell into. There was always a danger that we live our faith almost mechanically. When I was a boy, one of the rules we had before we went to school was you must have your personal Bible reading. And sometimes Dad would even say, you can't go to school until you've done it. Dad's idea probably was, you need to learn to love God's Word. This is God speaking with you. Take some time to be with Him. But life got in the way sometimes. And so we'd race through our devotional time, scribble out a couple of answers just to get, so we wouldn't be, get off to school so we wouldn't be in trouble. We're often in danger of contributing rather than committing because, as our thoughtful pig expressed a little earlier, contributing costs far less than commitment. It's easier to contribute because contributing looks like we are committed even though we may not be. I wonder how many young fellows in, in our church today did like me and, and my mates that when the church offering went past, we rattled the bottom of the, uh, of the plate with our fingers, which sounded like money was falling in and then moved it on without having put any money in. That's not commitment, is it? We hadn't even contributed, but it sounded like it went through the motions. It looked right and sounded right, but it wasn't right. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought that they were fooling everyone. But time and again, we read through the Gospels, the people saw and knew what was going on. They knew the corruption that surrounded these men. And we're told in verse 37 of chapter 12, the large crowd listened to Jesus with great delight. They enjoyed hearing Jesus bring these fellows down to their true size. 
As we look closely at the life and the ministry of Jesus, we see true commitment, absolute and total commitment. And Mark finishes his thoughts about these things with a short but effective story of something only Jesus saw. Again, let's set the scene. This was a couple of days before the Passover. Many hundreds of thousands of Jews had, my, had pilgrimaged from around Israel and around the surrounding Mediterranean area. There were probably upwards of a quarter of a million people in Jerusalem that normally housed about 25,000 people. The Mount of Olives would have been full of people camping all the way around the city. These people had travelled for the Passover festival. And into this huge crowd, Jesus had come. Remember, a great crowd had come with Jesus from Galilee up in the north as he journeyed down, making his way deliberately to Jerusalem, knowing that he was heading towards a crucifixion. The people had seen him healing the sick, making the blind to see, even raising the dead and stilling the storms. And now here he was coming in their thinking to somehow enter into Jerusalem and miraculously rid the nation of the Roman oppressors and these religious rulers. But despite all the business over those few days, Mark tells us this wonderful story where we find Jesus sitting quietly in the temple watching what's going on around him. Maybe he was taking a breather. Whatever. But Mark tells us that Jesus was sitting in the court of the women, the, the, the general area of the temple where Gentiles could come, women could come, not into the Holy of Holies, not into the sacred part, but in the general area. And scattered around the sides of that court, we're told there were 13 offering boxes. They were installed in the general area. Each box had a purpose, such as a payment for any, any sorts of things, quite a number of things. Sacrificial animals could be paid for there or birds. Sin offerings could be placed in certain areas or the temple building account could be looked after. And these boxes were set up with a large trumpet-shaped funnel at the top. As it happened, this enabled those who wished to have others see their generosity to make a noisy display of their offering, like a big bell every time you put a handful of coins in. People could look and say, wow, look at that man or look at that woman putting all that money into the building fund. What sacrifice. Or maybe there were people quietly wishing that it would make no noise as they put it in for one of the sin offerings because we didn't want to be seen to be doing that. You could say these people were trumpeting their activities for all to see and hear. But not so this woman that Jesus noticed, this widow whether she was old or young it doesn't tell us but as a widow she had no social security she obviously had no family to look after her and she watches as this lady quietly comes and moves towards one of the boxes and slips two of the smallest coins available into one of the trumpets where they quietly dropped into the box no big deal no big show Possibly even embarrassment at not being able to give more. But Jesus knew. He knew this woman was committing everything she had to God. Only Jesus divinely knew these two small coins were all that she had. 
and her commitment to God, her trust in God at that time was total, totally committed. This is all I have. I'm giving it to you, Lord. You look after me. She was giving him everything and relying on his goodwill for her future. I wonder, would you and I do the same? Has there been a time when you could have given God everything but decided for whatever reason not to simply make, but, uh, not to do that, not to be totally committed but to make a contribution? Adonias and Sapphira did that in the book of Acts and uh, came off very secondhand out of that one. Or maybe you were challenged to commit something, give it all to God and you gave him everything and made that total commitment. What happened then? Did you see God come through in wonderful ways? Contribution or commitment? Here's your takeaway. It's not in the newsletter this week, but here's your takeaway. Three steps. First of all, take some time this week. Take some time. Stop and be quiet before God. We find that hard to do today. We're always busy. The telly's on in the background. The music's playing. Always busy. Take some time to be quiet before God. Secondly, take an account of your life. When you committed your life to Jesus, maybe a long time ago, maybe recently, have you given him everything? Or has life become simply a contribution? I'll put money in the offering and I'll, I'll do this when I'm asked to do it. And yeah, that's the way in which I follow Jesus. Or are you totally committed? And then thirdly, take action. If you find pride of living or pride of giving in your life, take steps to recommit to your Lord. Like that woman. Such a contrast to those religious heavies that had all the wealth, all the power, all the authority, but it was going to take them nowhere. And here was a simple, lonely, probably, widow who gave everything. And the wonderful thing is that God noticed. And he notices what we do in the quiet of our lives. Are we committed or are we really making a contribution? Let's pray. Father, so often we can read these stories or hear these stories from the Gospels and they just become little stories, almost with a moral meaning. But when we fit it in, this, this, this lovely woman, whoever she was, we hear of her story and Jesus used that simplicity, that simpleness to contrast to all the rush and the bustle and the money and the power that go, was going on around them and saying, you, God the Father, are interested in that small thing, not in the big thing. This morning we commit. We commit in a new way, not just to contribute to your work, not just to bring you into our lives when it's convenient, but to actually serve you in how we speak, how we think, what we look at, what we think about, what we give to, everything in our lives. Help us to understand what true commitment is. Just as you showed us, Lord Jesus, when you committed fully in going to the cross. 
And may we do this not for our glory, but for yours. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.